Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Ryan Bussey. He is a former firearms industry executive who quit. He has a new book titled Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Bussey shows how America's gun industry shifted from prioritizing safety and ethics to one that is addicted to fear, conspiracy, intolerance, and secrecy. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates. Camp Howell, my father collected uh, Civil War and antique cannons, and, and I've always been allergic to them. And I, <laughs> I, I hope you, you, you do in the uh, industry, Ryan. Uh, okay. And then uh, uh, Bill. Bill, Bill Collins. Collins. I grew up in Boston, Harvard 63. Navy 20 years, various industrial jobs, ended up in South Carolina, Aiken, South Carolina, where I now live for work, and I'm retired now from all that stuff. I own two firearms. One is a percussion lock Derringer pistol, an antique, and the other is a uh, Springfield model 1873 trapdoor breech infantry rifle, single shot. Oh. <laughs> okay. All right. Peter. I grew up in Tokyo, Japan, went to Harvard class of 63, graduated in 65. But I just want to say in Japan, the police are perhaps the toughest uh, police in the world when it comes to uh, firearms and guns. And there are virtually no guns on the streets in Japan. And while there's plenty of other kinds of crime, there's not shootings. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Doug Shapiro. My wife, Charlene, and I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, at the end of this month, I'll turn 81 years of age. Uh, I try to keep my mind fresh and clear by swimming regularly and uh, by participating in these uh, LNAH uh, Zoom meetings that Kent so brilliantly uh, hosts for us. Uh, I'm about halfway through a novel by Kingsley Amos that's called The Old Devils about which the New York Times uh, once remarked that it encompasses the kinds of feelings and tone that move from sardonic gloom to lyric tenderness. Okay, all right. Hi, uh, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I've been since 1977. Most of the time when working, uh, putting out a University of Michigan alumni publication Hi, uh, Jerry Secundi. I live in Pasadena, California, and as we were talking earlier, I spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps. I'm an environmental lawyer. I uh, have worked for the government and private industry, uh, and we are gun owners. Uh, my son is in the security business, um, and I'm appalled as what is happening in the United States. Hi, hi. Yeah, I'm uh, Pete Delisavoy. I live in up in northern New Hampshire, the uh, live free or die state. And uh, I was raised in, and grew up in Evanston, Illinois, just a, a few miles from Highland Park, 
where the last uh, mass shooting occurred. And uh, I, I've, I've seen Mr. Bussey on uh, TV. I'm looking forward to the res to the presentation and, and reading his book too, because this uh, the whole transformation in the gun culture has uh, I don't know if it was like the frog boiling or what, but it it just seemed to sort of happen to me uh, back in in uh, Evanston growing up. In, in high school in the late 50s, I was on two teams. I was on the two school teams. I was on the track team and I was on the rifle team. And in those days, we walked up the hallways with our 22 rifles on our shoulders. And I bought my ammunition in the same school store where I bought pencils and erasers. <laughs> and in general, I was, I was raised in a and a house full of guns, and uh, they were just just for fun. You know, they were just for fun. And I would say that even as recently as 20 years ago, I considered myself a Second Amendment Democrat. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the South with SNCC and uh, in the gun culture in the black community, there's very strong. And yet, you know, I just suddenly woke up, I guess, with the publicity of the shootings and this this ration epidemic that we've had. So I'll be most interested in the presentation today. Okay, George Allen. Uh, I live in Los Angeles. <coughs> grew up in Omaha. My family uh, had Quaker and French Catholic roots. I don't know how the French Catholics felt about guns. I knew that the Quakers were uh, unalterably opposed. Uh, my dad fought in World War II, uh, but he always characterized that as having been a just war, as St. Augustine characterized. Such. And I wish that Peter were right in his usage that Highland Park, uh, which is where one of my freshman year roommates in Massachusetts Hall lived, was the last of these. <clears throat> I think it's merely the most recent. Uh, Alden Briscoe, born in Mass General, grew up in Connecticut on a farm uh, where I hunted for uh, woodchucks, rabbits, uh, crows, uh, and so on. Then lived in Aiken, South Carolina for three years, New Haven for a year, D.C. for three and a half years, Flint, Michigan for three and a half years, Chicago, 15 years, and now live in San Mateo, California. David Allen, uh, not unlike Peter and some others here, uh, growing up as a six-year-old, I took my 22 after I put on my coveralls and my clod hoppers and gotten on the wagon and gone out to work in the field for the day. You just took your 22 with you. That's just the way it was. Uh, going through infantry OCS, God forbid, in the Vietnam War era, uh, since my father had brought back, he'd been an infantry officer in the Second War. He brought back a 45 automatic, which I have today. I even um, scored uh, marksman with 45 automatic, which you usually can't hit the side of a barn with. <laughs> it does not define me, despite the, that history. We've got to take these goddamn guns out of the hands of Americans, more than one per living human being here, insane that they're available. Looking very much forward to your presentation. Okay, Marcy. 
I'm in New York City, uh, working to organize an archive and counter disinformation to prevent disasters of all kinds, including the destruction of open water habitats that are essential for sustaining wild fisheries. Okay. Spencer. Hi, I uh, grew up uh, as a double holstered hoppy, uh, pistoled, uh, hoppy Cassidy meaning. <laughs> And, here, here, uh, hop along, Cassidy. There you go, man. I fire with both hands. And uh, then I graduated to Red Rider BB guns. Oh, man. Wrote the NRA. They were heroes, you know, and uh, all that. And uh, when I, uh, I, I once uh, fired a BB gun and, and uh, wounded a, uh, a bird, old bird is in a tree, and I, I threw the gun away. <laughs> Haven't had a gun since. <laughs> Jeffrey. Yeah, hi, uh, Jeff Fox. I'm living in uh, in Spain. Um, my my really only experience with guns was as playthings when I was when I was a kid, and we got really excited about them. I mean, it was a way of um, well, of course, imitating imitating uh, the cowboy heroes and and others. You know, figuring out uh, you were, but. I think the only only time I've actually fired a rifle was in a, was in a summer camp, and the only times anybody has fired at me, fortunately, they missed. Uh, <laughs> All right. One was a cop in Venezuela, uh, but uh, yeah. Mason. Uh, Mason Morfat. I live in Freeport, Maine. I'm in my third day of COVID and feeling a little punk. Ooh. So uh, Ooh. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> don't get don't get too close. Okay. Uh, I presume I this will pass. I think we're safe on whom. All right. Of more, of more concern is the fact that about a week ago, in the process of deaccessioning a lot of junk I've acquired over the years, uh, I went up and sold two of my three shotguns. And while I was at the store, they had a new shooting range. And I said, well, I've never shot a pistol in my life. And so I signed up for a lesson and uh, uh, shot off 50 rounds of nine uh, millimeter semi-auto. And I now have about half the hearing that I had. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm dead serious. You guys sound like you're on your own. Oh, 100%. I, can't, wow. I can't understand my wife if she's not uh, looking at me so I can see her mouth. So uh, <laughs> I'm hoping this is a passing phenomenon, but I suspect it isn't. Hi, my name is David Othmer. I'm a classmate of all, all these guys and grew up in South America. And the closest I ever came to a gun was eating the venison that my uncle and my nephews had shot on their farm in Michigan, the farm that my mother grew up on. It was very good venison. Oh, okay, <laughs> great. And now we go to our guest. And I just wanted to say that, uh, uh, Ryan, that when I was growing up, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and we used to, I was, as an explorer, I was in the Boy Scout, and the Explorer Boy Scouts or whatever, but we used to ride on the subways with our 22 rifles. You know, in oh and nobody ever said anything, and it worked uh, out. So here, wow. here's uh, Ryan uh, Bussy. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, that's a good story, Kent. And with the recent Supreme Court ruling, um, you may be able to ride the subway again with your 22 <laughs> rifle here uh, by the end of the week. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is I suggest that you all keep this together and take it on the road, and perhaps a Saturday Night Live skit would be um, <laughs> in your future. 
Um, I've done probably 50 or 100, you know, podcasts, some great big national ones. I don't know that any are as prestigious as this. So um, thank you for having me. Um, and I mean that I mean that with all sincerity, um, quite heartening to see a group of folks come together and uh, and try to make the world better. So thank you. Um, so I think that this is important for lots of reasons, um, the spillover effects that we experience and that we see on the news in Highland Park and black and brown kids in Chicago. And, you know, I could go on and on and on. But I uh, came to the realization through writing my book that this subject matter, I think, actually is at the very center of our national radicalization. I think that gun and gun politics and the NRA have, I, I believe that I lived in the kitchen where this sort of hell no, all or nothing, um, tear the country apart kind of radicalization that we are all living with or observing um, from places like Cusco um, are, it, it is really, you know, if it's a great big ball, the NRA radicalization is the middle of it. I don't think that we're going to come together as a nation or make anything much better until we start to deal with that. And that's why I'm just a little bit heartened with the Senate vote of now about 10 days ago. I mean, we had 65 senators come together and vote yes on something. And let's face it, 65 senators couldn't vote yes on whether ice cream is good or not. So um, I think that there is some kind of bubbling up from the public um, espousing some of the sentiments that I heard from some of you in your introductions. So um, I will tell you that just before this, I was advising the House Oversight Committee on hearings that are going to be held next week. Um, I have done closed door briefings with the Democratic Senate caucus with 50 U.S. senators, um, and I actually have my presentation open from those. I might share just a bit about um, a bit about that because um, never have I shared that even with lawmakers, even with national lawmakers, and their jaw not been hanging open. Um, a bit about me. I grew up on a rural Western Kansas ranch, um, very rural place. It was 60 miles to a fast food restaurant, 20 miles to pavement. Um, it's still very rural today. My family um, homesteaded there during the homestead days. My great grandmother um, told me stories of living in dugouts and dodging tornadoes and all the sorts of things that Kansas kids do. Guns for me became a very symbolic and healthy part, I think, of my culture, because we work very hard on that ranch. There wasn't much time to do anything fun. When we did do things fun, it often revolved around guns like hunting or shooting with my brother or my dad or my best friend. And so guns for a lot of, and I tell this story in my book, but I think a lot of people don't understand how it is that guns can become symbolic of a culture. And I experienced that. And I think, um, that explanation is important for understanding how political organizations like the modern day GOP or the NRA can tap into the natural propensity of people to want to protect that sort of important part of their culture from what seems like um, some sort of fearful, you know, takings, right? And so if, if entities like the NRA can perfect the sort of fear and conspiracy of hatred and racism in and around the taking of that culture, you can turn, you can actually upend a country. And I think that's, that's what we've seen. I got into the firearms industry after I graduated from college. 
1995. And for me, uh, it was a bit like a kid playing baseball, going to the major leagues. Like, you know, it was a dream. I was going to get to be in and around the things that were so symbolic of a healthy part of my culture. Um, I, I should say that my father, responsibility, safety, those sorts of things were always first and foremost in our life with guns, with my friends. Um, never did the guns define us. They were things we used, but they did not define us. They were never treated with a cavalier nature. Um, we were not allowed to be irresponsible. My father's best friend and his father were both murdered when my dad was 16 with a 1911-style pistol, which I heard noted here today, and which I sold millions of eventually. Um, it was a very tragic murder. It scarred my dad. Um, obviously, he he was very, very aware that um, guns could lend into life in an instant, and that's what they were designed for. And so that sort of responsibility was always wound through all of our lives. And for the first part of my life in the gun industry, the same sort of safety and self-imposed responsibility was evident too. Um, and then things in the firearms industry started to change. And um, by about 2007, as Barack Obama started to lead in the polls, a very purposeful approach by the NRA um, to, to take everything that happened in society, including mass shootings and propagate the fear that we talked about earlier, combined with Protection and Lawful Commerce and Arms Act passing in 2005. That's a law that is in existence now that provides a broad liability shield for all firearms companies. The assault weapons ban not being renewed by George W. Bush on um, September 13th of 2004, 20 years of war where we have been glorifying on evening news shows every night, these sort of heroes um, with AR-15s and these returning soldiers, um, the NRA cranking all of this up into a political machine of conspiracy and hatred as Barack Obama started to lead in the polls. Um, I saw it all come together in um, a very, very, very frightening conflagration. And I think we're living now with the repercussions of that. And I have, I have bad news for you. Um, it's not going to get any better anytime soon. And in fact, I think some, several of you mentioned the Highland Park shooting. I think you're precisely right. Uvalde, Buffalo, Highland Park, um, those are not unique events. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse, those are warnings about what is to come yet if we don't make major changes. Um, I think that Senate bill that passed is a step, a couple steps, maybe a few steps, towards reestablishing some sort of system of social norms, but um, it's, a, it's a long ways from, you know, fixing 30 years of this mess. Uh, we got into it incrementally here. Um, I, I, I'll, I guess I'll stop there just for a second. I wonder, uh, you were working for the NRA, is that right? No, I was not. I, I, please. <clears throat> There's a lot of things you can call me and I'll answer to a lot of things that one I'll not answer to. I've never been, I've never been an NRA member, something about the organization, even though I worked very closely with them and I knew everybody on a first name basis. But honestly, the organization always just gave me the creeps because I saw what it had evolved in from what, like my grandfather, who was a proud Roosevelt Democrat, um, his favorite hat was an NRA hat, right? He wore it to high school, to my high school baseball games and football games. And, but 
that organization compared to what the organization is today are, are not the same thing. And I saw the transformation of that was never. What I wondered is, what I wondered is, you've been in a position to see exactly how they put together their propaganda and appeal and how they sell their ideas. So that must give you some insight into the best ways perhaps to uh, counter them. Well, it sounds like you're writing jacket blurbs for the back of my book, but yes, oh. that's, um, <laughs> that's precisely what I think that for us to sort of unwind this thing, whatever it is that we're dealing with, we kind of have to understand how it was wound together and what the aims of it are. And yes, um, what's very frightening to me is if, if you, everything that you witness now on the right and Trump and Trumpism, literally there's not a single component of it that I didn't live in and around with the NRA and the firearms industry 10 or 15 years before, not a single component. Um, this sort of all or nothing devotion, this trolling of any outliers, this keeping every, this authoritarian, keeping everybody in the same line, this always accepting only the further right sort of component is a way to drag everybody along this ever increasing extremism, right? It's, I came to see the firearms industry much like a very badly gerrymandered congressional district where the only incentive was ever to become more radical. That, that if, if, if some company advertised in some egregiously irresponsible way, the only way for you to get more attention was to advertise and market in a more egregiously irresponsible way. And it just keeps going and going and going. Then when I'll, I'll just say this to give you sort of an idea what scares me. When I got into the industry, there was about 335,000 guns sold in the United States to consumers per month. It sounds like a lot. By the time I got out in 2020, there were about two to 2.5 million guns sold every month in the United States. Um, there were virtually no AR-15 sold in the United States 20 years ago. There are now about four to four and a half million gun AR-15 sold in the United States every year. The highest period, the highest 12 month period gun sales ever in the history of the country. First was the reaction after Sandy Hook and after President Obama and Vice President Biden at the time tried to institute gun legislation. That was the first one. You had about a 16 million guns sold in that 12 month period. But the next one was like, I, I look at it as my generation's 1968, right? It was 2020. It was COVID, lockdowns, protests, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, National Guard, Portland, Antifa, like on and on and on. In that 12 month period, January 1, 2020 to January 7th, 2021, 25 million guns are sold in the United States of America. Um, and so if you're a firearms industry executive looking at what drives sales, you have to think racism, fear, conspiracy theory, social angst, all of this stuff drove the highest 12 month period sales period for firearms in the country. Why wouldn't you want more of that? That's, that's what scares the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to show you just to give you an idea of what we're dealing with um, and how important this is. I'm going to share my screen now. Okay. So I'm going to give you an idea. This was the, the first really egregious <clears throat> firearms marketing that was used in 2012 to tap into this 
this change that so many of you talked about, this was the gun that was used in Sandy Hook, the first really aggressively marketed gun. It happened in 2010. It's called the man card campaign. And <laughs> when you purchase this gun, you got this man card in the mail um, said in a world of rapidly depleting testosterone, the Bushmaster man card declares and confirms you are a man's man, the last of a dying breed <laughs> with all the rights and privileges duly afforded. You carry it in your wallet, ready to show at a moment's notice, instantly ending discussion for anyone who would doubt you. So if that's 2010. Mm. And if that sounds a lot like um, our, our modern politics and Trumpism today, I think you can trace the roots right back to this sort of marketing. This was a picture I took at an NRA convention that same year, right before, and I mentioned this in my book, right mm. before this, this kid's younger brother, a toddler was up on this 80 pound helicopter gun. It's a 50 cal BMG, shoots about a mile and a half, blows holes through vehicles. And there's a group of parents, about 30 parents and people taking pictures and cheering these kids as it was happening. Then December 14th, 2012, um, Sandy Hook happens. My point here is that there's a direct line <clears throat> between firearms marketing and, and the most horrific events in our society. Um, this now is a Smith & Wesson M&P. This is the gun that was used in Highland Park last week. And um, it's now the number one selling rifle in the United States. Prior to 2006, it did not exist. M&P means military and police. And um, there's about 350,000 of just this model sold to United States consumers, not military and police, just normal consumers every year. This is a sport version of it. It was so this is the gun that was used in Parkland um, sport, meaning to soften the image of the gun, but the, it's the exact same gun. It just has a sport name on it. This is an advertisement that I saw at the um, 2018 SHOT Show. Um, SHOT Show is the largest industry trade show. All industry company, all gun industry companies belong to NSSF, National Shooting Sports Foundation. They own the SHOT Show. Um, the SHOT Show is one of the largest trade shows in the world. This was a huge wall-sized advertisement in 2018. I want you to note 2018, two years before that 2020 crap that we just talked about. So before Antifa, before this happened, here is an advertisement saying, basically saying, we hope this happens so we can sell more guns. Spikes Tactical is an AR-15 maker based in Miami. Um, here they're saying, not today, Antifa. And you have, notice you have t-shirts, backwards ball caps, AR-15s, hoping to stare down the ruffians. Um, this is predictive, right? It's two years before it happens. Here we have advertising, hoping it's going to happen so you can sell guns. What's their problem with the pipe fitters union? Um, <laughs> well, they call they call themselves the pipe hitters union. Oh. Um, <laughs> so two years later, so just look at how these guys are dressed: backwards ball caps, t-shirts, AR-15s. Two years later, Kyle Rittenhouse, Ooh. backwards ball cap, t-shirts, AR-15, staring down the ruffians. My point here is, firearms advertising is at the very core of our national radicalization. This this stuff is having a direct impact on our society. Here, here's a gun currently being marketed by one of the large AR-15 makers. It's called the Urban Super Sniper. You can Google it. This is just a snapshot from their website. Um, I don't think you have to use a whole lot of imagination as to what an Urban Super Sniper might be used for. It's, it's not even, <laughs> I mean, quiet part out loud. Hell, the loud part's out loud. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what this gun is supposed to be used for other than to take it into an urban environment and snipe people with. 
and this is marketed and accepted and covered by PLACA, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. They can't be held liable for this irresponsible marketing. It's a law signed under Bush. Here you have the 17th largest firearms maker in the United States is Palmetto State Armory. Here you have the Boogaloo Boys again, the guys that hope for the race war to start. This is the Boogaloo Boys AK-47 limited edition that they sold for six months. Again, loud parts out loud. They're, they're, they're using this to make, like this is, this is what they're selling. Um, I think of this now as a storm creating its own weather. Um, these are all, these are all news clips. Here's one of the industry itself celebrating the fact that social angst is driving more sales and more minorities are buying more sales. Racial tensions in the U.S. are helping fuel a rise in black gun ownership. Why are more people of color buying guns? Here you have the January 6th insurrection with the come and take it flags, a spike in violent crime. So you see more guns creates more of this tension, more tension creates more gun sales, more angry white people buy guns, more black people believe they need to protect themselves, they buy more guns. You see here, it's a storm that just keeps creating its own weather. It gets bigger and spins faster and goes back, you know, it just keeps going. And there's nothing, there's no controlling liability. There's no controlling legislation. We've removed, you know, we're just, it's like global warming. We're pumping heat and moisture into this thing and it's going faster and faster. Here's a chart of what's happened sort of the change that some of you tried to enumerate in your lead-ins about how gun culture has changed. And um, please don't think you're being deceived. It has changed very, very radically. And it's demonstrated in this graph. Prior to 2007, the United States never purchased, consumers in the United States never purchased more than 8 million guns in a single year. So you basically have a flat graph going backwards, back to those times when you guys rode on the subway with a 22 rifle or used them in your school shooting leagues or did the same, like I pheasant hunted on my way home from high school. Every chance I got, there was a shotgun behind the, behind the farm truck. And I, you know, I drove it to school every day. Um, those things were not uncommon, but that was a much different time back when that graph was much flatter. Starting in 2007, you see what happened to gun sales. And I think all of that should frighten you because this is what we're living with right now. We're living with the repercussions of this. But what is going to go on over here? The graph tells us we're going to go over here. The graph tells us it's going to get much worse. So, um, and this is the this is the now the logo of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, always shooting for more. So the industry is telling us that they're going to shoot for more. Um, so I'll stop sharing that there because I don't want to <laughs> further depress you. But my book is all about my life in the industry, my family's life how we got from one existence to another existence and how all of this has wound up changing our country. It's not just about guns. I think as, as you all know, there's something about guns and society that changed the political discussion that convey a sense of authoritarianism that changed the power dynamic in a way that nothing else in our society does. And I think that's why they're so integral to our political discussion. And I think that whatever it is you care about, um, I'm, I'm an environmentalist, I'm a climate change advocate, I'm a conservationist, and I don't think any of that's going to get any better until we figure out how to make some of this gun radicalization better. In other words, I think anything, well, I don't care if it's women's reproductive rights, whatever it is, I think it's all wound up around this thing. 
So I guess I'll stop there and take questions and elaborate on anything else you might have. Alden. I raised my hand about 25 minutes ago and you've spent the last 25 minutes talking about almost exactly what I was asking about, which is the interconnection between politics and economics. Whereas politics is all the uh, racism, right wing uh, authoritarianism and so on. Economics is if I'm a gun, if I'm a gun company, I want to sell guns. I want to sell ammunition. I want to sell all. Is is one leading the other, or are they? Did they get entwined so that they 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 stair step up? So they got entwined, and I think about it. The 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 simplest way I can say it is, the NRA figured out a few components that would drive their desired political outcomes hatred, fear, racism, conspiracy, and otherwise. In other words, I think they figured out, stumbled onto the fact that if they pressurize our society, it, a pressurized society will vote in very volatile and irrational ways. That's why, that's why Donald, you know, you, we've all asked the question. We all have friends that, you know, how in the hell could X vote for Donald Trump? How in the hell could evangelicals, how in the way, you know, all, all of these things. Well, a, an overly pressurized society can do those sort of unpredictable, irrational things. It just so happened that the firearms industry is, is associated with the NRA, and it sets back and says, wait a second, holy shit, the same things that drive that pressurized political outcome also drive gun sales. I, I think we got a marriage here. And so the economic interest become intertwined with the political interest, and it just spins ever faster and ever more powerful from 2007 to now. Okay. Uh, Jerry. I, I am so depressed at this point. I'll, I'll still try to get my question out. Uh, and I'm trying to look at the future. For many countries around the world, there came a tipping point where the massacres were so egregious that indeed they developed legislation that confiscated guns, that changed the outlook. Is there going to be a tipping point in the United States? Do we need a mass shooting every single day before Congress acts, before society says enough is enough? Um, I don't know if that would do it. So, so the truth is, like, can you imagine anything more horrific than Sandy Hook or Uvalde? I mean, come on. Um, 20 dead kids, right? Little kids. And... That, I mean, essentially nothing happened after each one of those. We, we had some marginal action here on the Senate bill, but nothing really of substance. Um, there were no bans. There were no, you know, n n nothing, nothing changed in, in really substantive ways. What I'm a little bit fearful of is that this is going to, I, I hope there's a tipping point before there's a point at which we cannot come back from. Um, the one point of hope I will say is that, so there's a saying in elk hunting that you hunt elk where they are, not where you want them to be. And I think a lot of folks have wanted responsible, I use that, responsible gun owners to be very upset with Sandy Hook or Uvalde or Mash. And, and, and they weren't as upset as they should have been. But what they are very upset about is this idea that democracy may be threatened by, um, you know, by these right-wing terrorist organizations that are centered in and around gun rights and gun radicalization. I get, like, I got emails from them today. And so 
perhaps that's the thing that tips it over. I mean, we have 400 million guns in the United States. We have about 200, to give you an idea, um, I mean, I was talking to folks from DC today, the traffic's horrible there, right? There's a lot of cars. There's 260 some million registered vehicles in the United States. There's 400 million guns. You think there's a lot of cars around? There's 400 million, there's 100 million more guns than there are cars. So putting that genie back in the bottle, having a tipping point on that is not exactly gonna be easy. What we have to do, I think, is find some of those, we have to figure out a way to reinstitute some of those social norms that, that you guys so aptly discussed in, in your leadings. Are there any other countries in the world that have similar kinds of gun cultures to ours? No, nothing similar to ours. There are other countries that have relatively high rates of gun ownership, but they do not have our gun culture. Um, Switzerland, you know, let's face it, there's so many places where there just isn't any comparison to the United States, but Switzerland has a relatively high gun ownership, but they have very stringent, you, you have to renew your license to own your gun every couple of years. You have to go through very stringent gun safety protocols and certifications. You have to do all of these things. And then, and, and Switzerland doesn't have much gun crime. Um, the United States has no such quote unquote here infringement. And I use that word um, as a pun because there is a growing second amendment absolutist movement here that literally believes there can't, in fact, their rallying cry is shall not be infringed. Those four words from the second amendment. So anything that is done, that is said, that is proposed, they just yell back shall not be infringed. And they're, and now they're to the point where they believe literally if they used to not be this crazy, but there are millions of them now that believe, well, if the, if the government owns drones that can kill people from 35,000 feet, so should we. They believe in this twisted sense of the Second Amendment that somehow they're going to use this stuff to overturn a tyrannical government. But um, so I guess my short answer is that there are parts of companies or countries that are like ours, but nothing like the soup that we have. Jeff, go ahead. Oh, okay. I uh, I have two questions. Well, if, uh, I think you alluded to groups of gun owners who are who want some restriction, who are who are fearful of this, uh, you know, increasing violence, and then then this and this uh, all this propaganda you've been going to. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. And, the, and my my second question was clearly at some point there was a break for you. It must have been some kind of a crisis, a crisis of conscience. Uh, what I mean, you've left you've left that work with the industry, and maybe you could describe what happened. Yeah. So the first one, there's a I think there's a growing concern from um, responsible gun owners. The problem is they're not organized. They don't vote in single issue voting blocks. Mm -hmm. um, that those things are the really the power of the gun lobby. It's not the money. It's the fact that they have these energized, passionate, radicalized, single issue voters that will sway key races by half a point here or a point and a half there. And I do see hope in these responsible gun owners, but they're not organized into these groups, nor do they vote single issue yet. Um, yes, there was a crisis of conscience for me. It was really sort of, I, I did this press conference in 2004 
at the National Press Club decrying <clears throat> the energy plan of the Bush-Cheney administration as it was set to rototill some of the last wild places in the United States, Rhone Plateau in Colorado, the Valvadal in New Mexico, the Badger II Medicine here in Montana. And when I did that, you know, I knew what the shtick would be. I was this conservative, you know, from this conservative industry criticizing a Republican administration, but I was doing it for hunters and for shooters. I was just trying to save the places where we hunt and shoot. Well, the industry came after me with pejoratively here, both with guns a blazing, right? They tried to fire me. Um, they did every, they trolled me the same tools that are now used against anybody that speaks out from the right. And the scales really fell from my eyes. I'm like, just a second, you know, you guys have been telling everybody you're for hunters, you're for conservation, you're for wild places. You're not for any of that shit. You're for political power and money. And so that sort of attack personally on me woke me up to the fact that I had been co-opted into this thing that, that I was sold a bill of goods on. And I decided from that point forward, I'm voting my own self-interest. I'm not being pulled into this sort of cultish movement. And it just so happened that was at the same time when all of this stuff that I just went through was starting to really speed up. And I lived this out-of-body experience for the remainder of my career. And my company never sold AR-15s. I never participated in any of this marketing. I fought hard against it. So I fought to hold to the principles and the culture that I grew up with to try to hold the industry to that, but it just spun away from me. Okay, thanks. David Allen. Um, I had in mind to note uh, the, the potential point of no return is uh, when this just flood, I mean, as you point out, more than one gun per citizen, this flood of guns, Suddenly, and of course, attack weapons, air 15 for God's sake, what the sort of thing I learned to destroy people with when I was an infantry officer. Uh, when this gets unleashed in some, is it an accident that happens? And do we descend into civil war? I don't think it'll be civil war, but it could be the most extreme sort of uh, violence. We ain't seen nothing yet if it comes to that when we're talking about mass shooting. But if I could on something that for me is what matters most of all here, uh, I see no prospect that there's going to be any serious change. Yes, thank goodness 65 senators saw fit to take some tiny, puny, utterly ineffective step on this matter. Thank God for that. But the truth of the matter is, so long as sparsely populated states have two senators, so that by one calculation, 40 million Americans are not represented by what goes on in the Senate. We're not going to see change. We're not going to see change on guns. We're not going to see change on abortion. We're not going to see change on immigration. It's been stalemated for decades. If there's any place that it's worth putting our energies, in my view, it's what would be the most inconceivable reform, but nonetheless a reform, so that we start getting true democratic votes so the Senate really represents where the country is. So Until that happens, we ain't going anyplace. So I think, David, um, uh, something that I'm often asked about, how is it, you know, the, the, the question always starts, I've been on CNN, and it's, it's bad when a guy who's expert on this has permanent links on CNN and MSNBC. That's a bad thing, which I have both, have both of those. <laughs> um, but I often get asked, you know, this Background checks pull at 82%. How is it we can't pass them? Gosh, I just don't, you know. And I, one of the things I tell them is to your point, 
Well, background checks don't pull at 82% in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They might in LA, but Sioux Falls has just as many senators as LA does. And, that, and that's a problem. Um, secondarily, the reason it's so hard is because the analogy I use is background checks look like this little pebble on the ground that you ought to be able to pick up. Anybody could pick up and just toss over the fence. But when you reach down to pick it up, it's attached to this much larger boulder and that boulder is attached to a much larger mountain. And that boulder and that mountain are the, it's the very DNA of the right side of our political spectrum. Like guns and gun radicalization and hell no NRAism is at the very heart of the GOP and the right. And so you think you're just picking up this little nice little policy pebble that pulls at 82%. You're not. You're attacking the very nature of what the GOP has made itself into. And that's, I mean, is anybody going to say, hey, gosh, tomorrow, I think we can get the very nature of the GOP change. It pulls at 82%. Nobody says that. But that's what it is. That's why it's so hard. Can I get into this? Yeah, George, George Allen. My takeaway from this is a couple of things. One, uh, the Republicans are not going to refrain from doubling down on the abortion decision. They think this is their one chance. And so they are going to go out and enact as many draconian uh, ban outright abortion altogether uh, state legislative bills as they can. And that's going to be a lot of them. Uh, they're not going to back off of this, even though it is potential political suicide for them. I agree absolutely that we're not going to turn the gun culture around. Uh, maybe if you would agree with Cass Sunstein's notion of nudge theory, that once you get something moving, that you can then move it a little farther and then farther still and get some momentum in the Senate, the, the Senate finally getting 65 votes on some measure of doing something is based on nudge theory, a positive movement. Uh, there are couple, there's one other thing I wanna point out. Uh, there's only so far these guys will go on uh, destroying the regulatory state. They're not going to terminate the FAA's regulatory power because they fly on airplanes and they don't wanna die in a plane crash. Uh, and Justice Thomas famously, I guess by now, noted that he was for revisiting every single one of the important Supreme Court decisions except Loving versus Virginia, which was the decision of the court that uh, it was unconstitutional to prohibit interracial marriage. <laughs> now have something like, oh, I don't know, 15, 18% of the marriages in this country are now interracial. Uh, and since a lot of couples don't get married, the real number is probably higher than that. I do think that right now it is likely the Democrats are going to retain control of the House uh, and maybe the Senate. Uh, this whole Trump movement does, in fact, contain the seeds of its own destruction. Uh, as a political power. I am much less sanguine about guns uh, and about whether or not we degenerate into a sort of, sort of a Northern Ireland kind of shooting at each other uh, sporadically and then less sporadically uh, war uh, where we see assassinations of Supreme Court justices or mayors or 
whatever, and there's no way in hell that what happened in Highland Park and what happened in Uvalde and what happened in Buffalo and what happened in El Paso and what happened in Sutherland Springs and what happened in Charleston, and that's just going to keep right on happening. Uh, that, that boulder is just coming right down the mountain. Uh, and I totally agree on that. I, I think that everything that's been said has been dead right about guns. But I think the anti-abortion decision uh, represents uh, potentially a huge game changer. And let's remember, uh, Trump lost to Biden in the suburbs, and especially lost Biden in the suburbs with suburban women. And to me, uh, I think that's the horse we got to ride. Uh, I hope you're right. That does not mean that I do not agree about guns. I agree absolutely about guns. These guys now see their identities in terms of guns. They see themselves as emasculated, except I've got this goddamn gun. Uh, and so much of their lives involve other people telling them what to do. Uh, you know, what cubicle you're going to sit in, what time to show up when you go on break, don't use your computer for your goddamn personal shit, uh, all that, that the only form of demonstrating that they have any agency over themselves is their, is their gun or their gun and their pickup truck. Uh, now, how do you feel about that, uh, Ryan? He's right. Um, I think you need to be very frightened. What, what's changed in gun culture is gun culture, right? Um, David Frum and Tom Nichols in the Atlantic. I had a piece in the Atlantic uh, a couple of weeks ago about AR-15, but Nichols and Frum have both written about this. Um, guns and gun culture and gun radicalization now define these people. And I hate to say it, but some of them actually kind of quietly hope for a civil war, right? This is their chance to be the big man on campus. And um, I mentioned this in my TED talk, but there, to me, if you want to understand what we're talking about here, think about this example and try to apply it to our national political ethos. If you're at a dinner with nine of your friends and you're waiting on the 10th and your nine friends, like you have some glasses of wine, you maybe have political discussion, maybe it gets heated, but you have these rules of civility, like nobody jumps over the table with a fork, right? Because this, these, this is how your, this is how your friend group works. You have an agreed upon set of rules and regulations and and unstated things. Then your 10th friend shows up, that person walks in the room, loaded AR-15, strapped to his chest, 30 round magazine, finger near the trigger, sits down at the table, like all the civility is done. The only opinion that matters in the room now is that person's opinion. Everybody shuts up, they look at that person. And that, that example is exactly what these armed people are seeking to do to our politics, to our political sphere. Like they don't care about winning votes. They don't care about civil discussions. They don't care about policy you know, debates. They don't care about the civil rules that govern our big collective dinner table. They care about their opinion and jumping to the front of the line. That's why guns in an authoritarian culture and these people that we're just discussing are so frightening. They can do that. They walk in the room, only their opinion matters. And I think it's something to be very worried about. Little Vladimir Putin, uh, each one of them. absolutely right. The parallel is the nihilist culture in Russia at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, when people just wanted to tear it apart. 
these guys want to tear it apart. Yeah. Uh, they've moved past political. I mean, hell, the NRA is bankrupt and, and essentially uh, incapable of doing much of anything anymore. It doesn't matter. Uh, it has morphed into becoming uh, the, the majority of the Republican Party. Right. John, did you have a question? No, I, I would say that's not, not an entirely full view of what was going on in Russia at the turn of the that century. They did have the Narodniks who were like our uh, ultra left uh, and the same type that we saw in 1968, but they also had a uh, you know a more disciplined labor movement. I mean, you could say that did, were the American revolutionaries just wanting to tear things up because they wanted to get away from the authority of the British crown? I mean, there are different approaches. But anyway, no, I was thinking in the main that that um, the psyches of the American youth, young males, the germ of the problem, and however they have been formed and are being formed, uh, we need to look at because the behavior we're seeing, we see that it's certain types of, of guys are doing it. Now, of course, in the cities where you have a gang structure, the same kinds of, of feelings of, um, of life doesn't have any meaning and, and urges to violence, they could take it out in, in gang violence, which is, you know, related, but it's the same, it's the same demographic, really, uh, shooting up, shooting people and glorifying of shooting people. Um, the germ there might be transmitted often through, um, uh, you know, rap and other cultural, um, you know, infectious agents as I see it. It's all related. I mean, we're producing young people who are unhealthy and, and it's uh, biting us, biting the whole society because you can't produce that many young people. It's just a, you know, what percentage of them then has to have the means and the desires to act on these feelings. Right. It's a well, listen, we've been going now for about an hour and uh, 15 minutes. And uh, Ryan, what's, uh, what's next for you? What are you up to next? I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. I figure some of you are trying to, <laughs> trying to figure out the same thing. Join the club. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I guess I've decided I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to undo what my old industry has done. And I'm going to try to take every moment I can to make the world a better place. So I don't exactly know. There'll probably be some more writing, but I don't, I don't know exactly what else that entails. Um, I'd like it to entail a lot more fly fishing and bird hunting, but I, I don't know if that'll be the case. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Best well, of luck to you. Thank you so much for coming on then. That was yeah. really uh, yeah. 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 It's very good. Thank yeah. you, everybody. Thanks, guys. Everybody have a great day. Thanks for being on and being concerned. That was former gun industry executive Ryan Bussey. His book is titled Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>